No. Who are you? Well, actually, I am a dentist. A dentist? Well, I want to be someday. Right now, I'm just an elf. But I don't need anybody. I'm... I'm independent. Yeah? Me too. I'm... whatever you said. Independent. Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh? You wouldn't mind my red nose? Not if you don't mind me being a dentist. It's a deal. We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. Different from the best Who decides the test Of what is really best We're a couple of misfits We're a couple of misfits What's the matter with misfits That's where we fit in Why am I such a misfit I am not just a nitwit They can't fire me I quit Seems I don't fit in Who decides the test Morning, everybody. Good luck getting that song out of your head for the rest of the day as you'll be humming it. I'm sure you're aware because it came out this week, but every year, Time Magazine, uh, they put out a person of the year it's on their front cover, and so uh, this past week was uh, the revelation of who it was that they were going to put on their front cover, and after President Trump so graciously declined the honor due to, you know, interviews, a major photo shoot that had been necessary, it opened the door for another winner besides the president, and I'm not knocking his discernment because I know what it's like to grace the cover of a major <laughs> magazine. The photo shoots, the interviews, the late night talk shows, I mean, it, it gets overwhelming. So he's got a lot of golf to play. He doesn't have time to attend to all that stuff. So I don't know then if you heard who the winner was, uh, Times Person of the Year, they called them the silence breakers. Those who bravely step forward to share their stories of sexual assault or harassment that has led to a movement going on right now in our culture. And I know there's intense feelings about it. It feels like every day there's another revelation of some other celebrity or some other famous person that, oh, not them, and, and even how to think about something that's decades old and how do you bring about justice. And so we've had even some very spirited conversations here on staff just kind of uh, dealing with uh, all the things you keep hearing now. It feels like on a daily basis. And uh, the movement, though, that was launched is characterized by a simple phrase, a hashtag, really. It's just simply, me too. Now, it began to really take off because Alyssa Milano, the actress, uh, she's received recent credit for the emergence of the hashtag as she used it on Twitter, and she called for other victims to also just use the small phrase, just me too. And I remember the day that this started, just even my own Facebook news feed and Twitter, how many people, and it was sobering as a guy, just to see how many uh, women in my life were putting me too, even many of you here in this room. But the Me Too phrase actually didn't start with Alyssa Milano. It actually goes back 10 years ago, prior, to another woman named Tarana Burke. 
Now, to Alyssa's credit, when she discovered it, she gave her credit for it, but Burke was a founder of a youth organization, Just Be Incorporated, and she created the Me Too campaign in 2007. She created the campaign as a grassroots movement to reach sexual assault survivors in underprivileged communities. And she says, to quote her, it wasn't built to be a viral campaign or a hashtag that's here today and forgotten tomorrow. It was a catchphrase to be used from survivor to survivor to let folks know that they were not alone and that a movement for radical healing was happening and possible. And so what we see today is there's great power in it. Even the little phrase, it's just two words, five letters, me too. It's powerful because there's a lot that stands behind it. There's a truckload of implications at its behest and perhaps one of the most relieving responses anyone can get in two small words, just five letters. It says, we hear you are not alone. In fact, I'm with you and I'm like you. I understand. It communicates empathy and acceptance and affirmation and acknowledgement. Because I think what any survivor will probably tell you is that in the process of the wounding, you struggle with all sorts of profound loneliness in it, a real isolating experience of shame, second-guessing, flares of anger, sometimes self-loathing, blame. And in that place, there's often a voice that speaks, and the voice is a lie, but it's saying to them powerfully that you are all alone in this. No one has ever been through what you have been through, and no one will understand and will probably judge you and look down on you because of it. And so it tends to keep people silent and afraid and isolated, alone and wounded. And in that context, there's no more powerful response to the struggle and the story to hear back, me too. In an instant, there's solidarity. There is relieving discovery, I'm not alone, that I'm not the only one who's experienced this, that someone else has walked in this path as well. I might still be wounded, I might still feel like a misfit, but I'm not the only misfit. I'm not alone. Someone is before me who just heard my story and was able to say back two words, five letters, me too, and it's powerful. I've even often wondered if uh, James, uh, when he wrote his letter to the church, encouraging Christians, you should confess your sins to one another, which is a very difficult thing. Like most are like, nope, we'd rather keep those just to ourselves and just God and I. And, but he'll say in James chapter 5 or 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And my experience is that the most powerful response to a person confessing their sins is not a I absolve you, or a, you're forgiven, your penance is to say, five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers, but rather to have somebody look you in the eyes after your confession and say this, me too. Because right now, you've convinced yourself that you're the only one who struggles with that particular sin, because that you're the freak, that you're the misfit, while everyone else has it all together. Or right now, you've convinced yourself that you'll never fit in because you have those thoughts that keep coming to your mind and no one could possibly have those thoughts and thus you're alone. You do not belong. You are a misfit. 
And the most powerful experience is to hear someone in the face of such confession say, me too. I've struggled with that as well. I've had those thoughts as well. And there's often a bondage that's broken in that moment. Uh, Satan, I found, has a way of leveraging silence and secrecy, and it just has an additional burden and weight. And the moment it's confessed out loud, there's sort of a breaking of that bondage. But also, you feel isolated alone, and there's a bondage that gets broken when somebody responds with, me too. So here's a tip for you. If anyone ever confesses their sin to you, do not do, ooh, like don't do that. That doesn't help people. The moment you treat people like that in their confession, it makes them feel like a freak in such a way that brings shame on them, and ironically, it drives them deeper into the sin. In fact, I've seen this dynamic at work oftentimes uh, with pornography, like when a, when a couple is struggling through that issue, like one spouse discovers that the other spouse is looking at pornography, and there's always two issues in it for me. One is the pornography itself, but the other is the reaction and response to the pornography, and both are equally important because I find that the reaction oftentimes will sabotage any ability to move forward in it, that both are required in terms of how do you get there. And so when you already feel like a freak, or that you don't fit in, or you don't belong, or that your story would be rejected and judged if anyone really knew you, what your heart longs for, what it needs is me too. And misfits long to find a community in which they can be misfits together. That's kind of the video illustration of the beginning of the message. you got Hermie, who's an elf, but really a dentist. And Rudolph, who has a nose that doesn't look like anybody else's. They don't even really have the same misfit story, but they have a common shared experience of being a misfit. And so, even as independent as they are, they commit to being independent together. There's something powerful that takes place when misfits find each other and form community. And I believe the church is should be, and has always been intended to be a community of misfits. A place where a countercultural, not fitting in very well, misfits come together, and in the power of their togetherness, they do remarkable things. We say around here often that we're a bunch of screwed up people, and we are. I'm screwed up, you're screwed up, some of you are really screwed up, I've got that list too. And yet, God is crazy in love with you. And when I say that, sometimes I get a little insecure as the pastor, that when I say that over and over again, that we think, well, not, I suck, you suck, let's just, you know, more self-showering, self-acceptance and affirmation. And I don't think that's quite our good news either. That's not the gospel. I very much believe in this idea of transformation, the idea that Jesus gets a hold of our life and via the work of His Holy Spirit, He calls us to a process of sanctification. You can catch glimpses of it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul will write and say, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not, be, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Or, like he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief 
in the truth. It's this idea that, okay, we're all screwed up, but he's working on us. But he's crazy in love with us, even from the beginning. Even before we turn towards him, he's crazy in love with us, but he's working on us. It's the idea that I have been justified in Christ when I gave my life to him, but then I enter into that sanctifying process to let my life look like Jesus. See, you have years of way of thinking that they just don't go away the moment you make a decision for Jesus. You've been seated with Christ, you've received salvation, but now you have to enter into that sanctifying process to figure out, how do I take all those old ways of thinking and now conform them to the thinking of Jesus? Or you could have years of a certain behavior, I mean just ingrained, instinctive behaviors. They don't just disappear or go away when you make a momentary decision for Jesus. You've been justified because of Him, but now you enter into a process of sanctification to learn new behaviors that reflect Jesus. And this is what I mean by sanctification. And I don't want me getting up here and saying, well, we're all screwed up, but God is crazy in love with you to translate that sanctification is not a part of our life in Jesus. Is that clear? Let me get that. But you are still screwed up. (laughs) I haven't seen any of us walk on water yet. And you know when the sanctification process ends? When we die, when you move immediately from sanctification to glorification, and until then, let me just remind you, you are screwed up. Merry Christmas, everyone. We're done. (laughs) It's to say, hey, we are misfits. And we are misfits now because of Jesus at times in a most dramatic way. Misfits because even in the context of the life of Jesus, which we still don't have down and seem to be incredibly messed up with it at times, but misfits now because we've confessed Jesus as our Lord and now we don't really fit in with that old life we used to live either. But I think it's good for us to know where we came from, to remind ourselves of what we once were. I mean, even at the start of that sanctifying process, and don't you love people like that uh, they, they succeed in sports or entertainment, but they never forget where they came from? We even use that phrase, right? Like they have all the means now they could turn their back on their upbringing, where they came from, the life of poverty or underprivileged. But we just love the athlete or the, or the movie star who does not forget where they came from. And so maybe they pour back into their community now because of their wealth, a youth sports facility, or maybe they buy their local school instruments for all the kids in the music program. We've got this sense that they didn't forget where they came from. And we like that. And we don't want to forget where we came from either. Misfits. Loved by a misfit messiah. And Paul will have to remind the Corinthians before, you know, the Corinthians had a tendency to think they were kind of all that, (laughs) like that was kind of their religious pride was a a real issue for them. He has to keep coming in and saying, let me remind you where you were, like let me remind you where you started, where you came from. He'll say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26, listen to this, he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. He's reminding them, like you, you gave your life to Jesus, but I want you to remember what you were like. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. <laughs> Did he just call me? Yeah, he just called you a fool. <laughs> God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And in case you didn't catch it, he, he's even more dramatic here. And the things that are not. Not. You ever been called a not? You are a not. Nothing. To nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. 
it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, he, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I love this because Paul is gently and lovingly reminding the Corinthian Christians, you aren't the smartest, you aren't the richest, you have no impressive pedigree, you were a bunch of fools, weak, lowly, despised, misfits, and God chose you. And let me also say a word here about uh, misfit churches. Like, this is just the truth. Like, um, misfits long to be together in community, but if you have a community full of misfits, it's going to have issues. <laughs> like, you just can't have a bunch of misfits get together in community and they're not be issues with even the reality of their misfitness, if that's even a word I just made up, but we're going to go with it. And everyone wants to criticize the church, and I get it. Like, <laughs> I totally get it. Like, it's a bunch of hypocrites, or, you know, I'm opposed to organized religion, to which I want to say, great, because we're unorganized here a lot. Like, you'll fit right in. <laughs> I mean, I've seen the underbelly of the church, and it ain't pretty. And Jesus knows this, too. I mean, if Jesus were asking me, what I'd say to him is, Christianity would be so much easier if you could just kind of let us do our own solitary thing, like just send us off into the woods, and we could stare at nature, and just kind of, ooh, I love God, God loves me. Like, if we just hang out there, like, go to the ocean, and look out, and just, oh, how beautiful it is. Kind of have that God and me moment, and that scenic mountain. Like, if that's what Christianity was about, like, it's just easier. Like, I don't have to deal with people, because people mess everything up. But if you watch the ministry of Jesus, you'll note he never sends his disciples off into perpetual solitude, ever. He always draws them into community. He brings misfits together so that they can experience that me too moment. That it might serve as encouragement to live life as a misfit, because life as a misfit can be difficult. I mean, why do you think there's so many anti-bullying campaigns that are uh, uh, going on now in today's culture? Because the misfits can be vulnerable. And there's strength in numbers. But Jesus doesn't live in some fairy tale land. He knows. Like, he knows that if you bring a bunch of misfits together, there's going to be some conflict. There's going to, and that's why he has so many of his teachings deals with the reality of being community as misfits. He talks a lot about one another. Like, he has to remind his followers how they're going to love one another and what that's going to look like. He has to teach them how to pray for one another. He has to teach them how to encourage one another and even forgive one another. Even on a practical level, he recognizes there's a good chance two misfits could get in a fight. Like, that could happen. Like, and they need some instruction on how to deal with that. So he'll say this in Matthew 18, very practically, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And here's the critical part right here of the verse. Just between the two of you. You see what Jesus just did right there? He just solved 90% of conflicts that will ever break out in a church. Right there. 90%. And that, that might even be under, underestimating it. Here's what Jesus did not say. You should call your best friend and ask her what she thinks. And tell her what she did. And see what, like, he doesn't say that. He says, just, just the two of you. It's nobody else's business. Like, anything beyond that at this moment is just gossip. Like, just, so they hurt your feelings. You go to them and you say, hey, you hurt my feelings. And I'm telling you, over 90% like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it like that, or I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, or that came out the wrong way. And all of a sudden, what happens? You got peace. You got on the phone talking to so-and-so, and I just don't like, you know, it goes on. Verse 16, if they won't listen, then take two or three others along, so every matter will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What we see Jesus doing here, he's trying to give them tools to live as misfits together because he knows a bunch of misfits gathered in community is going to have some issues. He'll say this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. If you are, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, 
What does he say to do? Just leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, like this is higher priority, like that you as misfits get along. This is a higher priority than you offering your gift at the moment. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come back and offer your gift. So don't be thrown off or discouraged if you discover a community of misfits has issues. Of course it does. We're a bunch of misfits. Ephesians 4.2, Paul reminds us, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. That's a heavy word there. Bearing one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But I, I digressed. I was talking about the church in Corinth, and they were a misfit church. Let me go back to them. The church in Corinth was a screwed-up church. Like, I don't think us living stoners even have anything on them. I mean, there were a bunch of lifelong pagans who were now trying to figure out how to live as followers of Jesus in one of the most culturally debauched Roman cities around. And yet, Paul expected them to change the world as misfits with nothing to brag about. Wealth, nobility, wisdom, Simply empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were expected to transform the city of Corinth and to participate in the expansion of Jesus' kingdom. One with not Caesar as the head, but Jesus. They were to be world-changing misfits. And the only way that happens is if they do it together, in community. One misfit next to another. That's why in the same letter to the Corinthians, and we talked about it in our Hinged series that's why Paul will look at these misfits and will compare them to the body of Christ. He'll say, you're all misfit parts of the body of Christ. But when you come together in community, you will look like the misfit Messiah. And the formation of that community includes one misfit looking at another and saying, me too. I got here the same way you did. Me too. Two powerful words. Just five letters. You're not alone. We're in this together. And as a church, we can't ever forget where we came from. A bunch of misfits beloved by Jesus, but coming together for a common purpose to change the world. And sometimes great things happen when a group of misfits come together. Powerful things can take place. Even going back to the Old Testament, we see stories of just that's like a ragtag group of misfits coming together, and next thing you know, amazing. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament about another misfit who's on the run. His name is David. You know him as King David. But before he becomes king, there's another king. Saul is his name, the very first king of Israel. And Saul knows that Samuel the prophet has anointed David to be the next king. And he's just filled with all sorts of jealousy. And so Saul is always trying to kill David, and David is on the run. And on the run, he's attempted to find sanctuary in different places, even among foreign kings. Will you take me in and, and protect me uh, to, to save my life? And nothing really works out, at least well. And he finally discovers a hiding place at the cave of Adullam is where he's at. And while in hiding here in the cave, he gets word out to his family of his whereabouts. And so listen to what happens next. First, first Samuel 22, verse 1 and 2 says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And look at verse 2. And those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, David. And he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So go back. Do you hear those descriptions again? Like David needs an army. Like He needs some support around him if he's going to be king of Israel. And he's already been anointed, but, but look at this group. What does it say? There are, who, who came to David? Those who are in distress, those who are in debt, 
and those who are discontented. Notice, it does not say, so the smartest and the finest and the strongest and the wisest and the best. These are just misfits. The, hey man, I can't get the credit card company to stop calling me. Can I just hang out here with you in this cave? Or I'm so tired and exhausted of working 50 hours a week in the factory. Is it okay if I just hang out in this cave with you? But these misfits will come together in community, and what they'll end up doing is establishing a new kingdom, one that will ultimately unite 12 tribes under one ruler and will lay the foundation for a new kingdom that through Jesus, God tells us, has no end. How'd that happen? A bunch of misfits. And from those misfits will come amazing stories of great uh, heroism and strength. People are just discontent. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, it kind of starts to unfold some of their stories of David's mighty men who were discontented that came around. Now, some of these names are hard to pronounce, so bear with me because it's not just Tim and Bob and Frank. It's Joshua Bathshebeth, who was a Tachmanite. He was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Can you imagine? One dude killed 800 people. And next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai the Elohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered in at Pasdamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but not Eliezer. He stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword, which is really irritating when my sword freezes to my hand. As I just... The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. And next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Herorite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a, f- a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them, but not Shema. He took a stand in the middle of the field, and he defended it. And he struck down the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. In fact, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. And David longed for water and said this, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. <laughs> David's homesick in this cave. David's from Bethlehem. And what he's saying is, I want water from my home. Water just does not taste the same anywhere else than Bethlehem water. They filtered, I'm just kidding. I think that's where he wants it, from Bethlehem. Problem is the Philistines are there. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord, saying, Far be it from me, Lord, to do this. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David wouldn't drink it. And such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three, He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. And then you got Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits, things like this. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors, and he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. (laughs) That's a footnote for one day it was just snowing, and there's like this pit and a lion was in it. He just jumped down and killed the lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah, he went against him with his club, and he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. 
And such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. And so the chapter goes on. It's just like well, there's a bunch of discontented, in debt, distressed misfits who come together and do great things. And I'm convinced from a bunch of misfit living stoners will come stories of amazing kingdom feats. Don't get lost that in the moment you might feel like you don't fit in or that you're different or that you're a misfit. I need you to know this morning that around you are sitting people who are also misfits who can look you in the eyes and say, me too. But God will use your unique self for his glory. In fact, it is precisely because of your unique self that God will use you in a way that he simply will not use anyone else. Hermie, in our story, because he was a dentist and not an elf, will save the day against the bumble. And Rudolph, because his nose was so bright, will save the day when Santa needed him most. You have something no one else has, and God will use that, and you will be a fantastic misfit. Sometimes it's in a joke, sometimes it's just in a stereotype that exists, uh, you know, the, the wedding reception, the table for the misfits, or maybe in the school cafeteria, the table for the misfit kids, the ones that don't really fit any other social category, they're not the jocks or the preps or the band kids, the goth kids. Those kids, those misfits, I found because they desire community, find each other. And they form the lunch table for misfits. It's their table. And they have solidarity together in it. And what I've discovered in life is it seems to me that the misfit kids who found community with one another, they end up being lifelong friends. And in just a moment, we're about to gather at a table. And it sort of has the same dynamics. Because of your confession that Jesus is Lord, you won't belong at other tables anymore that you might have used to eat at. Used to eat at. And Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. He'll say, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We're misfits that have been invited to this misfit table with our misfit Messiah as the host. And it is here that we are to experience encouragement, solidarity, and understanding that we all got here the same way. Like nobody earned it. Nobody deserved it. Jesus invited us. This is the moment where we eat of the bread and drink of the cup and remind ourselves of Jesus' gracious invitation. We got to this table because he asked us to. And that's it. But at this table, we are able to share with one another and are able to greet with one another two powerful words, five letters, me too, me too. And what we mean here at the table is you're not alone, you're not a freak, you're not excluded. We'll do this together. We will live as misfits, grateful for Jesus' grace and commit ourselves to his kingdom as misfits. Amen? Let's pray together. And after our prayer, I invite the band to come on back up here and those who help serving at the table. Um, but then if you'd like to, as you're ready after we pray, then just come on up and take the bread and the cup and remind yourself once again, we're not alone. We got here all the same way. Jesus invited us. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you rescued us. And even when we thought we were independent, uh, you, you gave us a revelation of our both need for you and at the same time uh, that we were not alone. So I pray right now, Father, for those who 
uh, feel isolated. I pray for those who feel like they are alone, for those who have this nagging voice that's telling them that they're a freak. I pray in this moment that you give a revelation of not only how crazy in love you are with them, but also that they can find a community here where misfits come together and do great things for your glory. So now as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we're reminded that you loved us, a group of misfits, and for that we are thankful. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.